0: Because it is a brunch that is taking place during the time that most people go to church. Um, Our church is unique in that we meet in the evenings. The vast majority of people who are churchgoers go on Sunday mornings. And so the people that aren't in church on Sunday mornings, the ones who are doing what we all would like to be doing, which is having brunch, uh, those are the quote-unquote heathens. Uh, And so we're gonna have a heathen's brunch. Um, Because we're all heathens, and uh, we like brunch. So uh, that'll be my place at 10.30. Um, We will be sending out on the Facebook page this week an RSVP so that you guys can sign up um, and and so that we know how many to uh, cook for. But um, let's make sure that we are inviting folks, and and I think it'll be a really, really good time. So uh, let's dive into our lesson for today. Uh, we are currently in a series called, Why is this even in here? And we're looking at passages in the Bible that are strange, passages that are odd, passages that are hard to understand, um, and, and there are places, if we're honest, in the Bible that make us kind of scratch our heads and say, why is this even in here? What What is this doing? What lesson is this supposed to be teaching me? How is this supposed to help me grow? You know, there, There's places that we read and it's like, I get nothing out of this. Or places that we read that are just so confusing um, that, uh, that it just doesn't make sense. And so we're having this series so that we can look at these passages in the Bible with fresh perspective, with fresh understanding, and hopefully learning tools that we can put into practice to understand every passage of Scripture better. Um, I mentioned last week that as we're going through this, if there is a passage that you would like for us to study, uh, if you'd like to request a passage, please do so. If there are places in the Bible that strike you as being particularly odd, um, let's study them. Uh, I can't necessarily promise that if you make a request, we'll do it on the Sunday night because sometimes the conversation about it is better. Um, but no request will be um, will be left out. Um, I, I want to cover things in Scripture that matter most to you, you know, so if there's a particular place that you are really struggling with, let's, let's talk about it. Um, the passage that we're going to be looking at today was requested last week by Dan, who was at home watching, hi Dan, um, and it's kind of a doozy in terms of strangeness, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. Uh, this week, I have been uh, studying this passage, and reading commentaries, and studies, and notes, and, and I want you to know that this week, as I was researching this passage, it took me to some very strange corners of the internet. Okay? Uh, listen, kids, the internet is a weird place, okay? so be careful. Um, it, the internet is like a large city. Okay, a, a large metropolis. There, there are places that normal people hang out, doing normal things with other normal people. But take a wrong turn, and you can end up in Weirdo Town, where people have written in strange graffiti uh, while they're super-duper hot. Okay? It's kind of frightening, actually. And saddening, at, at times. Because you'll find things that make you afraid for humanity's survival. Um, and also heartbroken for people's souls. It was during this crazy ride into crazy town that I stumbled upon what I think might be the strangest cult I have ever seen. Um, And this cult is led by a Croatian man who goes by the name of Bracco. Um, It's spelled B-R-A-C-O. It's pronounced Bracco. Uh, Now, I want to preface this by saying... That every cult should make us sad. Right? Sad for the people who are being deceived. Sad for their loved ones. Sad, most especially, that they do not love Jesus. And it should make us determined to be missional. Right? It should make us passionate about the gospel. Passionate about preaching the gospel boldly. So that we can get as many people uh, the opportunity to hear the truth. So I don't want that to get lost in this. It is very, very sad. That being said sometimes you can't help but laugh. Um, and I don't recall the last time I read about a cult and giggled more. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't help it. You guys, are, I was looking at this stuff, and, and at every turn, I, I just couldn't help but but giggle. Uh, I know that's bad, but I couldn't help it. So listen, many, many cults form around a personality. And, and that particular... But that personality is usually uh, a faith healer or a self-proclaimed prophet, someone who claims to speak for the divine, um, someone who claims to give messages from loved ones who have passed on, um, people who have the power to lay hands and and and, and transfer some co- some sort of power, right? And so people will flock to these faith healers to hear their profound wisdom or their new age perspective on reality, or experience some type of physical healing. Brachko is a different type of faith healer altogether. Um, Brachko never claims to have any type of healing powers. He never claims to have any type of secret message. He never claims to have any kind of special spark. He never claims to speak... For the divine. And the reason is because Brachko never speaks at all. Ever. In fact, he has not been heard speaking in public in over a decade. He never speaks. He never lays hands on anyone. There's never any physical contact between him and the crowds of people that flock. All he does is stand up in front of them and stare at them I wish I was making this up okay Barashko literally travels around the world hosting what they call gazing sessions and and these sessions are attended by hundreds of thousands of people worldwide okay Uh, The event will begin with one of the volunteers getting up to kind of explain how the night is going to go. Asking if if this is the first time that, that people in the room have been around Brachko and how to make the most of the experience. Then there's a video of Brachko. And in this video, he stares. And then the video ends. And then a woman will come up and introduce him. And the woman will say, in a sing-song voice, In a few moments you will see Brachko. He will be looking at you. What you need to do is just look at him. Some of you will feel peace, a feeling of relief, joy, or tears. Just allow yourself to receive what you need most right now. And so I kindly invite you to stand. And then, Brachko is welcomed onto the stage. Elevator music plays in the background. And for five to seven minutes, he stands on a platform and looks. He gazes. He stares. He never speaks. He never opens his mouth. He just gazes for five minutes and then walks off stage. And that's it. That is literally all it is. And people pay $8 per session. Now, these things sell out, so that's a lot in terms of number. And he'll do nine of them in a day, and most people that go purchase the day pass so that they can have nine sessions gazing at Brajko. Now I'm sure you're probably wondering what is so special about this. What kind of healing powers is this supposed to have? Well, his his proponents claim that Brachko's gaze contains power from the sun. That at some point Brachko was connected somehow to the sun. He intook some beam of light and now that beam of light enters you in these gazing sessions. Now, again, Brachko himself, his printed materials, his website, never claimed that he has healing powers. But all of his proponents push these anecdotal stories of of people who say that Brachko's gaze changed their lives. How physical ailments have been healed. How relationships have been repaired. Emotional baggage and trauma released. Just by him staring at them, and them staring at him. Most people say that they feel this tremendous sense of warmth. A lot of people break down crying. If that's not crazy enough, people are encouraged to bring to the event a picture of a loved one who has some sort of issue, and then the people will hold that picture to their chest, facing Brachko, as he stares, so that the people in the picture can also receive the healing power of Bratchko. Uh, okay, so I have to show you Bratchko, right? I can't not show you Brachko. Uh This is Bratchko. Here he is. Uh, those of you who are watching online, please Google this. I beg you. Okay, I beg you to. Do you guys feel anything right now? Do you feel anything, any sort of power? Um, I, I read. I read. Yeah, give give us no, five minutes. Uh, it'll change you. I read a hilarious article from a skeptic journalist that attended one of his uh, day sessions, and she described him as looking like the coach of an Olympic basketball team from a country that will never medal. When I saw Brachko, my description that came to my head was Hobbit Fabio. (laughs) (laughs) Hobbit Fabio, he's about 5'6", okay? Uh, and this is all he does. This right here. This is all he does. Uh, for those of you that can't see, it's just a picture of him staring. Uh, go online, it will change your life. Uh, again, there's no doctrine, there's no dogma, there's no teaching, just gazing. His YouTube channel has 30,000 subscribers, and the views are in the millions millions of views. And do you know what every single one of those videos on this channel is? I'll I'll, I'll let you guess. That, yes, it is Brachko staring. In many of them, he's standing somewhere idyllic in nature. And so he'll be, like, standing by a river and a forest and staring. Um, I, I, I cannot possibly make this up. And this has been going on for over a decade, Okay. Bracco has an onyx temple in Croatia, where he's from, where he holds gazing sessions, and nearly a quarter of a million people attend his uh, temple sessions every year. Then he started going worldwide after a while, and uh, a woman named Angelica Whitecliffe was instrumental in bringing him to America. Angelica spent three weeks following him around Europe, attending his gazing sessions, And then she decided, Americans need this, and so she began to organize stateside trips. Here's how Angelica describes her first experience at a gazing session. She says, When I went into my first gazing session, I found that I immediately felt something so strongly inside of myself. I felt a strength and an energy enter into me that literally felt like I'd just been given back my dearest dreams, that I'd abandoned in this lifetime, just because of challenges and things that take place in life that, make you feel like you can't measure up and make these things happen. And I felt so concretely that there was an absolute knowing that I was given back these things and the strength to actualize them and build them. After I did my first gazing session with Brachko, my life began to change in these ways where I had more energy, more power, more determination than I'd ever experienced before. And I started building and creating these things that I'd not done before in my life that I've always wanted to do. It was quite powerful for me, and that led to wanting to experience Brachko and his gaze again, to feel that energy that's very palpable, and each time it feels different. It feels like something so nourishing to the spirit. Now coincidentally, and I do mean purely coincidentally, Angelica is the closest personification I've ever seen to the term crazy eyes. Uh, I encourage you to look her up too. Um, but she's clearly not alone in her sentiments. Many others claim to have similar experiences, simply from the stare of Brajko. Um, people claim to receive messages of love, meaning, purpose, and above all, a compulsion to continue experiencing the glowing gaze of their healer, and to bring others to experience it for themselves as well. Now, I won't take the time tonight to explain the power of suggestion, or the power of placebo, or the allure of groupthink, or even the very real power of the demonic. These people are clearly experiencing something. It's clearly not a good thing, but it is something nonetheless. The reason why I decided to bring up this story is, is because it illustrates for us one central idea that I'm going to keep coming back to over and over and over in this sermon. And that is that gazing at the glory of the divine does have the power to change us and to set our lives on a different course. So, uh, now we look at Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and there the hand of the Lord was upon him. As I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wings of one another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they, were, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, these wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings." And there came a voice above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of, a human, of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward, upward from what uh, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, enclosed all around. And downward from what had the, the appearance of his waist? I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So... Um, I made the mistake of listening to Hans Zimmer while I was studying for this sermon. Okay? Hans Zimmer, if you don't know, is a composer of movie scores. And I really like listening to movie scores, classical music, other instrumentals when I'm writing, when I'm studying, uh, when I'm putting materials together because it helps me focus. Um, but for this one, big mistake. Okay, Because Hans Zimmer, in his music, there's always sort of like an eerie undertone that's going... Um, And then there are banging drums. And and then there's choirs of people singing nonsense. Drums are banging. I was like, okay, I need to get up and get some coffee. (laughs) This was not smart. This, obviously, is a very weird, strange passage, right? Um, And so I'm studying and I'm reading, and uh, I I see a link on Google that says, Does Ezekiel 1 describe aliens and UFOs? I can't not click on that link, right? I I have to click there. And and, and so thankfully the person who was answering the question said, no, it doesn't talk about aliens and UFOs. But it's more the fact that somebody asked that, um, that question in the first place. But as I looked more, it turns out that this is a commonly held belief that this passage is about aliens and UFOs. And that is why we cannot have nice things. Now I am in. I'm greatly indebted to the Bible Project um, for uh, a lot of the material that I'll cover here. Um, do yourself a favor this week and watch the two part Bible Project video on the book of Ezekiel. It does an awesome job of putting this entire book in very simple, easy to understand terms. It summarizes the entirety of the message and the history. It'll take you about 15 minutes to watch, and it'll completely change your perspective. So go ahead and do that. Kayla, um, would you actually mind linking those Bible Project videos um, on our Facebook page? Thank you. So Kayla's going to link the Bible Project videos on our Facebook page. Do yourself a favor and watch that, because uh, those are awesome. So, in order to better understand this passage, let's start with our four laws of scriptural interpretation. So, uh, let's have our quiz... Who can remember the four laws of scriptural interpretation? Eli? Scripture interprets script- scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Very good, son. What else? Genre matters. Genre matters. Yes. The Bible is an ancient, ancient document and should be interpreted as such. Yes, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. And? What's the difference between these scriptures. and the I <clears throat> heart. You guys know your stuff. Yes. First and foremost, the Bible is an ancient document. And we have to read it as an ancient document. We have to read the the words as being written by a particular author at a particular time, in a particular place, to particular people. Um, it, It was written with a first meaning in mind. What the author intended to communicate to his audience. And we can't read modern things into the text. We have to look first at the ancient context and understand Now again, that doesn't mean that we look at the Bible and we say, it's just an ancient document not relevant to today. There are eternal truths on every page, and we take those eternal truths when we first understand the ancient meaning. It's from that we can extrapolate uh, what it means uh, for all of time. God is not ever taught anything new. Okay, so everything in here is eternal, but everything in here is also particular. So, next we have to note the difference between description and prescription. Just because the Bible says something happened, doesn't mean the Bible is endorsing the thing that happened. Okay, sometimes the Bible simply records an event because it's historical or important. It is not necessarily saying there, go ye and do likewise. Okay, so we have to see where the Bible is commanding us. And where the Bible is just reporting things to us. Uh, there's a difference between description and prescription. And we have a Bible that gives us a full, unadulterated look at the heroes of our faith. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We see their failures as well as their successes. And so when it records those failures, it's not like we look at those things and go, Well, they did this. It's written there so that we don't do it too. Right? Right? Genre matters. We can't read every genre of scripture in the same way. This is true for any type of literature. Okay? If, if you read books or anything else, you know that you can't read poetry the same way that you read a news article. And these are different purposes. You have to note literary devices like hyperbole, figures of speech. Uh, and, and so when we, when we fail to do that, we'll take things the wrong way almost every single time. And then finally, Scripture interprets Scripture. With every passage, we have to look at the surrounding text, the surrounding chapters, the, the book in which it's written, uh, and, and then also the rest of the text uh, of Scripture. And, and all of these pieces fit together. So, with these tools uh, being used, uh, let's now put those into practice to look at Ezekiel chapter 1. Okay? Okay? So, looking at the Bible as an ancient document, we ask the question, who was the audience for this passage? And the answer to that is the Jewish exiles in Babylon. The Babylonian Empire had come in, and they had kidnapped a, a number of uh, the, the Israelites. Okay? And there were waves of exile. All of Ezekiel's ministry is carried out, In Babylon. Ezekiel is writing this as an exile in Babylon. And that's very, very important. Okay, Because these people had been carried off as slaves. And the the Bible tells us that the reason why God had allowed that to happen in the first place was because of sin. Because of repeated sin over and over and over that was unrepentant. God allowed them to be judged. And so Ezekiel is going to spend his life being the mouthpiece of God to these people that are now living in exile. And furthermore, we read later on, that most of them are not going to listen to him. So when he receives this vision of the presence of God on his throne, this takes place in Babylon. So, he learns here, that God's presence is not limited to the temple. God's presence... Strangely, comes to a foreign pagan nation in order to speak the truth to his people. Ezekiel, that we know of, never returns back to Jerusalem. Ezekiel lives the rest of his life in Babylon. So here on the banks of the Kabar Canal, Ezekiel is given a vision, not of aliens and UFOs, but of the glory of God seated on his throne, being carried by four angels. And so from this, I think there are at least two takeaways. The first is this. Action always comes after awe. Action always comes after awe. We read in verse 1 that Ezekiel was now 30 years old. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. This refers to his age. And this would have been the year that Ezekiel would have entered into the priesthood. This, according to Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, that 30 was the age that, that, uh, that priests typically ministered in the temple, from ages 30 to 50. So you can probably imagine that Ezekiel is very sad that he's not home in Jerusalem to begin his calling. A calling that he has likely looked forward to his entire life. But God meets him to call him into ministry in the last place that he would have ever expected. Babylon. In the the seat of, of pagan idolatry. Now imagine the effect that this would have had on Ezekiel. He's exiled, he is enslaved, and he is hopeless of ever returning home. And he can't do the one thing that he was called to do, which is minister in the temple. So he very likely feels like a defeated man. When this takes place, verse 2 tells us that he's been in exile for five years at this point. So he spent the last five years lamenting what has taken place. And after five years of lamenting, after five years in exile, after five years living in this slave settlement... He has this vision. And can you imagine what this vision does to him? He sees here that God is more powerful than Babylon. After seeing something like this, do you think that he would have been afraid of the Babylonian Empire any longer? The answer to that is no. After seeing something this powerful, he is going to be willing to do whatever God tells him to do, like any of us would. And it's a good thing, because in the very next chapters after this vision, God tells him to do some very strange things. Um, We looked at one of those passages in last year's uh, series, Why Is This Even In Here? Um, And so you can look that up on the podcast. Um, I can't remember what the title is of the message, it's, it's something involving defecates cakes, uh, or poop cakes. Um, so look that up. Ezekiel is going to be opposed his entire life. Okay? People are going to be against his message. And so in the face of so much negativity, Ezekiel is going to need an answer. An anchor to hold on to. And his anchor is the powerful and glorious presence of God. As as we read this passage, let's, let's try to put ourselves in Ezekiel's place, right? Imagine his tone of voice. Imagine the look in his eyes as he is recounting this story to the people around him. When he's describing this vision that he had, I'm sure he's got goosebumps and his, his hairs are standing up. He's... He's probably staring off into the distance, eyes wide, seeing it all in his mind's eye again. This moment transformed him for the rest of his life. And that is always what the presence of God does to us. There's a lot of weird things here, right? There's a lot of strange elements. There's all this stuff that immediately strikes us as, what does that mean? What does that look like? But here's the thing, trying to explain any of that stuff is, is really a work in futility. So, I'm not going to try to explain the elements of what Ezekiel saw. And there are plenty of people who have tried to do exactly that, and, and, and take some sort of meaning out of it. Oh, oh there's four creatures, so maybe that, that represents the four corners of the earth. Or oh, there, there's four creatures, maybe that, maybe that represents the character of Jesus in the four Gospels. Or or maybe there's some significance to the four animals because they they represent the character traits connected to their positions in the animal kingdom. You know, like the lion is the, the king of the jungle. Is any of that true? Maybe. I don't know. But I don't think that that's really the point. The point is not to try to explain the meaning of every element of Ezekiel's vision. The point of this vision is to inspire awe. The point of this vision is to give a small peek at the fullness of the glory of the presence of God. And the effect that that would have on any of us would be awe, would be fear, it would be trembling. That is why Ezekiel responds the way that he does in verse 28. Where he says, um, "When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking." Says that when he saw this, he fell on his face. Now, this is the very same response that everyone else in the Bible has when they see the throne room of heaven. When they see a vision into heaven, this is their response. Paul on the road to Damascus has a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And what was his response? Acts chapter 9, verse 4 says, He fell to the ground and was blinded. Isaiah, uh, when he had a similar vision to Ezekiel, his response was saying, Woe is me, I am undone. John, in Revelation, sees the glorified Jesus, and when he sees him, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. And so when we get to the end of Ezekiel's vision, we see him saying in chapter 3, verse 15, I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling dwelling by the Kabar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Seven days he sat there at the bank of this river, just absolutely overcome by what he had seen. Explanation. Is not the point of this vision. Awe is the point. This incredible vision that Ezekiel has is not a code for us to crack. Far too often, when we read the Bible, we read ourselves at the center of it. We, we read it like it's Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables were stories that were meant to be read with a moral in mind. Read this story, apply this lesson. The Bible is not to be read with a moral in mind. The Bible is to be read with a person in mind, and that person is God. Certainly there is morality that flows out of that personality, but when we read the Bible, our first thoughts shouldn't be about us. How does this speak to me? What does this say about me? When we read the Bible, our first thoughts should always be about God. What does it say about Him? It should cause us to reflect on Him first. And this, this vision that Ezekiel had overwhelmed him. It absolutely floored him, and that's what it should do to us as well. If we try to picture this scene in our mind's eye, and, and one of the things that I like to do when I'm reading the Bible is, is I like to picture it at, like a movie, right? If this scene were a movie, what would it look like? And, and what, how would Christopher Nolan direct this on the screen? And so you, you close your eyes and you try to picture something like this. If you pretend that you were here in this moment, it should give you goosebumps. When I picture Moses standing on top of Mount Sinai, meeting with God. There, there's earthquakes, there's peals of thunder, there's flashes of lightning, there's, there's trumpet blasts. Moses meets God in a hurricane. The entire mountain is shaking. And I am sure that Moses never felt more small or unworthy in his entire life. Or picture Job. Job is crying out to God. He's, he's assured of his own righteousness. He's questioning the Almighty. And then it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then challenge after challenge after challenge in the the next chapters, God saying to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I put all this together? Where is the dwelling of light? Who is the father of the rain? Declare if you know this, Job. Surely you know. And this continues for three chapters. And by the end, Job says, I have uttered what I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the point of this vision in Ezekiel was not for anyone to read about it and say, Alright, so what kind of coded message is God trying to get us to figure out about these creatures and these wheels so that we can obey it? The vision was not given so that we could read ourselves into the story somewhere. This vision is given to Ezekiel to absolutely overwhelm him, to absolutely overwhelm any of us who hear him describe it. Of course we do not understand it. That's part of the point. It's supposed to inspire awe. Awe for a God that we cannot possibly wrap our minds around. This brings us back to the importance of reading the Bible as an ancient document. What is the original author trying to communicate to the original audience? He is trying to communicate to them, I have seen an overwhelming vision of the presence of the glory of God. So now listen to what he has to say to you. And it's only when we determine the original meaning that we can extrapolate the eternal meaning for ourselves. And so I think that part of the eternal meaning is this. If we caught a glimpse of God's reflection, we'd never divert from His direction. Let me say that again. If we caught a glimpse of God's reflection, we would never divert from His direction. Every single one of the men in the Bible who saw a vision of heaven, or a vision of the glorified Lord, was led by God to do very difficult, grueling mission on earth. Every one of them walked difficult paths after their visions. Paul was led all over the ancient world, preaching and evangelizing, and in doing so he was tortured, beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately martyred. Isaiah was sent as the prophet to the people, and the people opposed him at every turn. John, like Ezekiel, wrote from exile, and after his vision he remained steadfast in preaching the gospel that got him there in the first place, and had him tortured many times before that. Ezekiel would have a ministry with almost no visible fruit whatsoever. He endured not only exile and slavery, but also in chapter 34, watching his wife die. What I'm trying to say is this. These men all walked a difficult path of obedience, but they never stopped obeying the direction of God's leading because they had seen His glory. Far too often, you and I question God's ways. We, we question why He wants us to do certain things, why He won't let us do other things, why we have certain things, or why we don't have certain things. We wonder why He doesn't do things differently. And when He asks us to obey Him and trust Him, we hem and we haw and we go, well, you know, my idea does seem better. The problem is that we have too small a view of God. So you might ask, well, why doesn't God give us all visions like this? Blow us away with his glory? And I understand that question. I, I identify with that question. But in response, I would point us to two things. The first is this very book, the Bible. God is giving us visions of his glory. We carry them with us. We carry with us the visions of the glory of God. And so one of the reasons why it is so important and why I hammer this all the time that we stay in the Word is because staying in the Word keeps our view of God large. It keeps our view of God large. It's when we neglect regular time in the Word that our vision of God gets smaller and smaller in our lives. When we're filling our time our minds, our hearts, with everything in the world that gleams and glitters, we start wondering why God doesn't show up more. We start questioning His wisdom and authority. We start having a very large view of ourselves. And and, and when our view of ourselves begins to overshadow, or even just begins to approach the grandeur of the view of God, it's at that point that we don't stand a chance against doubts and fears. The other thing that I would point us to is the central character of this book, Jesus Christ. When we read a passage like Ezekiel 1, and when we read it the right way, it's it's awe-inspiring. Now, we read the Gospels so often like they're just average stories, because we're so used to the words, We're, we're so accustomed to it. But Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God that in him all the fullness of the deity of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is all of the awe of Ezekiel's vision, all of the awe of Job's encounter, all of the awe of John's revelation, fully dwelling in bodily form. He is God stepping down from above the four living creatures. And what does that God do when he steps down from above the four living creatures? He dies a criminal's death because he loved you that much. If that doesn't give you a view of God that is large, are you even paying attention? The Word of God and God the Word, when approached properly, give us the awe. To do whatever he directs us to do. That's the point of this vision. The point of this vision is it's supposed to get us to sign up for a gazing session with Jesus. And then when we go and we have that gazing session with Jesus, what it's supposed to get us to do is sign up for the day pass. So we can keep going back and looking more. And when we're done with that, we want to keep going back And looking more. Receiving from His sight everything that we need should cause us to go. I can't stop going. I can't stop visiting this. I can't stop looking. I got to get other people to see what I'm seeing. Because looking at Jesus as He looks at us changes everything. And what does it lead to? It leads to a changed life, it leads to a passionate mission because awe always leads. Action. In the course of his ministry, Ezekiel preaches messages that call people to repentance. He speaks uh, these things called oracles against certain groups. Um, The Israelites are the chief audience, but he also speaks out in his book against other nations, including Babylon itself. He's going to proclaim boldly that Israel is going to be restored. That the Lord is going to bring exiles home and rescue them from their oppressors. And remember, He's speaking these things in Babylon. He is behind enemy lines. He is literally living in a slave settlement, preaching this. He's, he's in this community called Tel Aviv. You can imagine the response of the people around him, his audience, as he's hearing, uh, as they're hearing this. They're looking around and they're like, uh, "We're in Babylon, dude." We are in slavery, and Babylon is too large, too powerful. We are a hundred miles from downtown Babylon because they own this much. We're not going anywhere. And imagine the Babylonians hearing this. The Babylonians are hearing Ezekiel saying, y'all are going down, and they're probably laughing. But none of that matters to Ezekiel, because he's seen the presence of the Lord. He's seen the presence of the glory of God. In an interesting twist of fate, Ezekiel's name means God is strong. And so he's going to spend the rest of his life talking about just how strong God is. Because he's like, have you seen this dude's ride? The chariot that this guy rides. He is the most powerful, strong thing ever. And that is, prompts him to action. You might say it like this, the seeing came before the sending. The seeing came before the sending because he sees in chapter 1 and he is sent in chapter 2. Because chapter 2 is Ezekiel's call. The voice says to him, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. There is seeing, and it immediately leads to sending. Awe always leads to action. The second thing is this. Light is most needed when you're standing in the dark. Light is most needed when you are standing in the dark. In the Bible, there are only four authors, four, who are given glimpses into heaven. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. Those are the four authors that are given visions into heaven. There are others who receive visions, like Stephen. Stephen looks up and he sees heaven opened up. But in terms of authors of Scripture, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. And every single one of them is in perfect sync with what they describe. Every single one of them is overcome with the glory of the Lord. When the heavens are opened up to them, there is little that they do record, and very, very little indeed. But it is dominated with a picture of the glory of God. It is the central detail of their accounts. And one of the other interesting things about these accounts is that These most powerful visions of God's glory often come in the darkest moments. If you look at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has a very similar vision to this. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Does this seem familiar? Wings, temple, smoke, all this fire. But what does the first thing say in verse 1? When does this happen? It happened in the year that King Uzziah died. This happened in a dark time. In John, uh, I'm sorry, in Revelation, when John is writing, when does this vision come to him? John says, I was in exile on the island of Patmos while the church is being scattered and persecuted. Paul's vision on the road to Damascus came as he himself had been plunging the church into a dark time. And so when things are at their worst, God shows himself most powerfully. In the book of Ezekiel, 32 times, 32 times it says, The word of the Lord came to me. 32 times, over and over and over, the Lord comes to him. Over and over and over God meets him. Again, where he is, in Babylon, in exile, ministering to people who won't pay attention, enduring trials and difficulties and pain and torture. Over and over and over, though, it says, the word of the Lord came to me. Sixty-five times in this book. Sixty-five times we see the phrase, thus they will know that I am the Lord. Thus they will know that I am the Lord. Over and over The word of the Lord came to me, and thus they will know that I am the Lord. In the midst of exile, in the midst of slavery, in the midst of darkness and opposition, over and over, God says, look at me. Gaze at me. Now, this vision in chapter 1 that Ezekiel has, where he fully describes... What it looks like to see the presence of the glory of God, and and these four living creatures, and the smoke, and the fire, and the throne, all of this stuff is fully described in chapter 1. But in total, he sees this same thing, the same thing, nine times. Nine times he sees the vision that we read about in chapter 1, of this uh, presence of God. The first is here by the canal kabar subsequent visions of the lord depict for example in chapter i think it's 11 if i'm remembering correctly he sees this powerful presence of god leaving the temple because pagan worship is taking place in the temple he eventually sees the presence of god returning to the temple After the people have been restored after repentance and and being brought back into fellowship with God. And so again, it it would have absolutely blown Ezekiel's mind that the glory of God would be anywhere but the temple. But over and over and over in Babylon, this same powerful depiction of God's glory is seen. Over and over and over, in, in the midst of darkness, God says to Ezekiel, It's time for another gazing session. I need to sign you up for another gazing session, Ezekiel. Things are bad right now. Things are hard. Why don't you look? Look at me. And let me look at you. Let's just gaze. Let's look. And this fuels Ezekiel forward. It's interesting to note that the ministries of Ezekiel and Jeremiah overlap. Ezekiel and Jeremiah overlap. Jeremiah, unlike Ezekiel, was not exiled. Jeremiah was not one of the ones that was taken in exile. Some of the people were left um, in the broken down Jerusalem. And Jeremiah was among them. So this means that God had a prophet in Israel and a prophet among the exiles at the very same time. Also, in the middle of this, overlapping, we have Daniel. Daniel was ministering at this time as well, and he is positioned in the Babylonian king's court. So, in every place God's people were, at home, in exile, and in the court of the king of Babylon, anywhere God's people were, God had a messenger stationed. In any one of these places, God was there to have someone say, Come and look at God. Everyone listen up. Come and look at God. Let me sign you up for the gazing session with the Almighty. And so whatever dark place you may find yourself in, the presence of God will meet you there too in the fullness of His glory. If you invite Him to. I want to close by reading Psalm 27. Coming under attack, enduring trials. And what does he ask? To gaze. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. God says to him, Seek my face, look at me. And David concludes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Gaze, my friends upon the beauty of the glory of God. It's far better than what you'll get by gazing at Brachgo. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a glimpse of of your glory. God, I pray that each and every day you would call us back to gaze upon your beauty again. That every day we will open the word and gaze at your face. That every day we will open the Word and we will see Jesus looking at us. That we will receive from looking intently at you everything that we will ever need. God, I pray for every person here or watching or listening later on in the podcast. God, if there is anyone who has never gazed upon your beauty and had it change them. Lord, I pray that you would show yourself real, show yourself strong, that you would bring that person into your presence, invite them to surrender. Lord, your word says that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so I pray that you would kindly look upon each one of us, that you would lead us to surrender, that you would lead us to trust, that you would lead us to giving you absolutely everything. And then, Lord, that you would also send us in action. Send us with the gospel. Send us to reach our friends, our co-workers, our our enemies. Send us into our little corner of the world, into our oikos, with the gospel on our lips, ready to tell people about the God that we have seen and inviting them to look at him too. As we sing our closing song, I pray that we would cry out as these angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You would stand.